Welcome back to Working Man's Pod. I'm Alex. This is Dave. We're here today to talk about Dave's Picks Volume 47, a show recorded at the Keel Auditorium in St. Louis, Missouri on December 9th, 1979. Welcome, Dave. Welcome back. We got to get back in full episode shape here. I know. Well, it's interesting because we have this one and then we will do one more from the vault, I think we said, and then get back into the full swing of things. So it's a little bit of a tease almost, but that's all right. Hmm. Um, Thank you to everyone who listened to our first from the vault episode. It's gotten like fantastic listenership, which is great. Uh, I think that that kind of confirms our theory that we had a lot of new joiners on the bus during the Dead & Company tour. And so we really appreciate you guys sticking around after that tour has now concluded and uh, listening to our Grateful Dead content. So we are talking about an official release today. Of course, if you don't have that release, unfortunately, they don't make the Dave's Pick series available on streaming, but this show is widely available on really wherever you listen to your Grateful Dead odds and soundboards and whatnot. So you can go find it and and listen along to what I think is a really good show. High level, Dave, uh, what's your thought about this show? It's high energy for sure. Um, I think that both set one and set two take a little time to ease in. It's kind of like some cold water, but then once you're in, man, it gets hot near the end of both sets. Nice. Well, we are going to get all the way into it in just a sec, but before we do, let's get into the days between. There were days, there were days, and there were days between. Do you want to go first today with your days between? Well, quite literally days between, because we put out our From the Vault app on Jerry's birthday, which is, you know, the start of the days between. And we are recording this on the penultimate day of the days between. So we've just been like in it for real. Um which is the first time in our podcast's history that that's happened. Uh, for me, just last full week of work. Um, so I'm about to enter vacation mode for about 30, 35 days. And then if anyone uh, knows anyone who needs a Grateful Dead themed lawyer, uh, hit me up. Oh, or otherwise, if you don't need a Grateful Dead thematic lawyer, if you just need a regular one, that's also fine. Dave is a barred attorney. So, um, well, that's nice. I hope that you'll get to do some relaxation and enjoy some nice tunes, maybe a concert uh, in in your days between jobs. Absolutely. What about you? So for me, uh, unfortunately, the band's name appears to be gone from their website, which I'm very sad about. But uh, my days between, and if you are a new joiner, then I'll just tell you, uh, the days between is kind of Dave and I noted noticed a long time ago that we were having Grateful Dead related things popping up in our time between recording episodes. And so we wanted to have a little space to kind of talk about it and say what sorts of heady random things had happened to us. The one that happened to me is that my wife and I were walking out of a movie, probably, I guess, I guess we started at like 3.30 when we were coming out around 6.00 there was a band playing in kind of this central area outside of the movie theater. It's kind of like a gathering place. So a bunch of people had chairs set up and stuff like that. And we knew that they did these Sunday or Saturday night shows. When we walked out, this band was playing fire on the mountain and. Oh, very cool. That was delightful. 
they were playing a great rendition of it too. They had a uh, female vocalist who was just doing a great job. Their drummer was doing some really interesting stuff on, he had like chimes next to his drum set and he was kind of working on those uh, during the chorus, which sounded really cool. Unfortunately, the band's name is no longer on the website for the the place that we saw them. They only have the events from August. And this was the last day of June uh, that we saw this happen. So I can't give them proper credit. I'm very sorry about that. But if you know of a band in the greater Durham, North Carolina area that has um, a pretty eccentric catalog, because when we heard them play two other songs, neither were like dead related or jammy or even like classic rock. Um, one was a Bruno Mars song, for example. Then um, maybe you can uh, write us and and we can give them a proper shout. But it's always nice to just stumble into a random uh, Grateful Dead performance out in, in the world. Oh, yeah. One more little thing that happened is that you and I are accidentally wearing matching shirts today for this, which True. is just both comical and embarrassing. Well, it's actually going to be my second Days Between thing, which is that our friend ah. Howard Weiner, Howard Weiner, who's whose book we're both wearing a t-shirt of the grateful pilgrimage available now on Amazon and at at Howard's website. Howard just launched his own grateful dead podcast called deadology where he's talking about different grateful dead shows. Uh, He and I had a nice conversation last week. He had a couple questions about kind of how to get it up and up and running, but it's now available wherever you get your podcasts. I believe I found it on um, Apple and on Spotify earlier today. So it's available I think the site that he's using to host it, it, it puts it out everywhere. So go check out Deadology. The name is uh, inspired and named after one of his various books about the Grateful Dead. Uh, he has Deadology volumes one and two. You can go pick both of those up on Amazon too while you're at it. Um, so shout out to Howard. Uh, it's another another fun way to engage with the Grateful Dead is to listen to Howard's podcast and hear all the things that he gets into um, when it comes to the dead. His first episode is about a show in 1982 at Alpine Valley. So Howard digs into kind of what was going on in that show and what his trip to Wisconsin was like to go see the Grateful Dead in 1982. So uh, those are the days between. On that note, I think let's get on with the show. Seventy-nine. This is new for us. It is Sunday, twelve nine seventy-nine, uh, at the Keel Auditorium in St. Louis, aka the City of Blues, um, if you will. What's going on in nineteen seventy-nine? We've never talked about this year. I believe. I don't think so. I don't think right? we have either. So, um, yeah. I mean, it's a year that, through the fault purely of my own, I'm not super well versed in. I'm wondering if you are before we get into anything further about this show. Nope. Um, I got nothing. It feels like a, like nothing pre research on 79. It's not like a year that I was like, you know, like 1969, for example, I I just know that's when the moon landing happened. I know that that's like a big, big year in the history books, but 79, I got like one big thing and that's it. And that was from doing research. I mean, I've got nothing from it, but I meant more specifically for the Grateful Dead. Like, have are, are you well versed in like the Dead seventy nine playing and history? I'm, I'm not. I just know that this has got to be like the first full year of Brent, right? And not so even. they're 
not even so they're yeah. got they've got to be like getting their feet wet with him yeah so i think that that's why this is a bit of a blind spot in my dead history my own deadology if you will um the, i think there are a couple reasons why i have kind of missed this year so first of all the god shows have departed as of as of december of 79 their final show keith and donna's was on february 17th of 79 and brent's first show with the band was on april 22nd of 1979 so he joined the band midstream in the year um he had been playing with bobby a little bit before that but he joined the grateful dead this year the god shows left the band this year so it's a bit of an in-between year the other thing is there are no like big tentpole types of events in 79 when you go through the previous years in 78, you have Egypt in 77, you have the spring 77 tour 76, you have their first full year back from the hiatus. 75 is the hiatus itself. So the few shows that we have from that year, most notably one from the vault are kind of have that extra sheen to them. 74 inverse the last year before the hiatus. So there's some you know, some memorable stuff going on there. 73, well-known for, among other things, Watkins Glen. 72, you have Europe 72. I mean, it goes on, so on and so forth. There are like things every year throughout the 70s, which I think is the Dead's most beloved decade as a as a live band, at least among the heads. And so it's interesting that 79, the big event is Brent joining. And I think that I honestly had just kind of slept on that. I, I really like the Brent era of the Grateful Dead, but for me, it's always been like the late 80s that I've kind of tended toward, 87 to 90, really, um, for whatever reason. So uh, this year, admittedly, it was a bit of a blind spot for me, but I really liked what I heard from this show. And it sounds like you also did not have a, a storied past with 79. No, none whatsoever. Not for the dead. All right, so... With that in mind, what was going on in the outside of the Grateful Dead? What's going on in kind of pop culture and music in 1979? The top album in the land uh, this week in 1979 on December 9th was The Long Run by the Eagles. It was their follow-up to Hotel California and um, this album unseated In Through the Outdoor by Led Zeppelin on November 3rd and then kept this top spot on the Billboard charts for the last nine weeks of the year. Uh, the enduring hits from this album are The Long Run and I Can't Tell You Why. I think those are the two from this album that you might still hear on classic rock radio. The top Billboard song in the land is uh, Babe by Styx. It's in the middle of a two-week run at the top spot. And the song of the year was My Sharona by The Knack. Uh, only six Ooh. weeks. Yeah. Six weeks at number one. Um, so interestingly, I always hated that song. I thought it was really cheesy. <laughs> And I mean, then yeah, it is a little bit. And it's also just like repetitive to me. But my mother-in-law gave me a bunch of her old vinyls. And part of the agreement that we made was I could do whatever I wanted with them after I'd listened to all of them once. So like once I listen oh, to okay. it, I can feel free to give it away, to sell it, whatever. And when I listened to that one, I realized that there's a really great guitar solo in the middle of my Sharona that is not in the radio version. I have no idea why. Oh, that's interesting. It kind huh. of brings the whole song together. And um, uh, shout out to my friend, John, who also pointed that out to me, um, that he was like, I don't know why they cut this solo out because it's actually a good song with the solo in it. But without it, it's just kind of like such like basic pop radio fodder. It's not really much to it. 
So I don't know why they did that. Um, I guess that was kind of what was selling at that point in time. Longer songs yeah. were not in at all. So I don't know. Maybe you disagree with me, uh, Dave. Maybe you disagree with me, Masses. But never my favorite song. But with the solo, it's kind of more interesting. So I, I'd encourage you guys all to go check that out and, and see if you agree, if you disagree. Um, birthdays on December 9th. Author John Milton, a very long time ago. Uh, actor Kirk Douglas, and um, actually a lot of actors, Red Fox, Dame Judi Dench, John Malkovich, and musicians Donny Osmond and Imogen Heap. And I had drummer Trey Cool from Green Day. Oh. One of those musicians. I've always loved that name, Trey Cool. Yeah. The double entendre aspect of it too in French. Very cool, yeah. I'm a big fan. So, uh, all right. We've already kind of talked about this year in Grateful Dead history, as I said, the biggest event of the year. Well, actually, Dave, before I get into that, you said that you had some other events from the history in 1979. What did you find? Backing up, can I go to December 9th, 1935? Please. Day in history. The Downtown Athletic Club Trophy, later renamed the Heisman Trophy, gets awarded for the first time. You're not going to guess who got it. So Jay Burwanger from what school? Jay Burwanger. I mean, <laughs> Yale. I have no idea that you're not, you're not like out of the ballpark university of Chicago, which I thought was very interesting. I don't even um, know if they no. still have a football team. Right. The, the big event from 79 on this very day, December 9th, 1979, Scientists confirm that the eradication of the smallpox virus, it's done. Humans beat the virus. Amazing. Great job by, I mean, not us, but us collectively, the royal us. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's crazy. That and polio for the polio for a long time, um, at least. Right. Polio's back, unfortunately. Yeah. Smallpox is still. Well, now it's, I guess it would be the only one that we've beaten for good. Yeah. Nice job. Nice job by us. So um, that's the big event in the history of 1979. Otherwise, not a ton seemingly going on that year, to be honest. Um, you know, obviously everyone, especially in December of 79, is excited about the dawn of the 80s. But, you know, in many ways, the 80s were already there. I mean, when you kind of look at the big things that would be happening throughout the 80s, you know, the, the things that I guess you could say defined the 80s largely. You have like <laughs> cocaine, number one, and especially like crack, the crack quote unquote epidemic mm -hmm. and like the whole Nancy Reagan just say no era. Um, you have the massive explosion of like wealth on Wall Street, especially, you know, before the 80s and before the movie Wall Street, bankers were like the nerdy people in your town who were kind of dorky and made a fine living. And then after the movie Wall Street came out, now bankers, like Wall Street investment bankers, are the richest people in the world. That stuff is already kind of in the water in 79, especially cocaine. That is really <laughs> going on in 79. In the water, in the air, and in the dirt. It's everywhere. Man. Everywhere you go. So um also the music of 79, when we talk about it, you know, um, sticks and my Sharona. If I hadn't told you, you would have thought both of those were 80 songs, but December 79th. Yeah, sticks for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and even I can't tell you why. Uh, that song sounds 
a bit 80s-ish. I mean, I don't know. I guess that's kind of a, a tweener. Whereas the album that was at the top of the charts before uh, the long run, um, In Through the Outdoor, I feel like that's a definitively 70s album. So we're kind of straddling the decades um, at that point in time, I think. So it's it's kind of interesting. It's kind of how people talk about the 2000s didn't really start in 2000. They started in 2001 with 9-11 because that's when things really got like weird and the defining issue of that decade began. Um, hmm. You know, it's not always as tidy as saying like, yeah, 1980 began, you know, this new era. Uh, oftentimes it's not that simple. But anyways, back to 79 with the dead. It's, it's interesting. There are not many live releases uh, from this year. Um, this is the sixth, just the sixth release from 1979. All are from October or later. So none of those last Donna and Keith shows, oh, none of the early Brent shows, it's all it's all from the end of the year. Once I think Brent was more in the groove at that point, I would just have to guess because he had, you know, it's an improvisational band where you're kind of getting used to how the other musicians um, perform. You kind of have to get used to how they play. So you have three road trips releases, one um, Dave's Picks, volume 31, which is from December 3rd, and one Dick's Picks, volume five from December 26th of 1979. And now this one. Um, so yeah, not a year that's been super well covered. This tour was a 10 show run. It began on November 29th, which was a Thursday in Cleveland. And then two nights in Pittsburgh that weekend, Friday and Saturday, three nights midweek at the Uptown theater in Chicago, Illinois night, three of which we have a sampling of, or excuse me, night two, of which we have a sampling of at the end of disc three of this release. Then we had uh, one night in Indianapolis, one night in St. Louis, and two nights in Kansas City to close out the smaller tour. Little Midwest run. Yeah, little Midwest run to to kind of largely close out their performances in 79. Um, this is also in between... The release of two albums no grateful dead studio release came in 1979 we had shakedown street on november 15th 1978 that was their second record back at uh arista records the first being terrapin station and then the third at arista is um go to heaven which was released four months after this show um, in april of 1980 so you get some songs from from both albums during this show and you can tell that they're kind of enjoying those songs around this period of time. The venue. So by my count, the dead played 31 shows in St. Louis. There is a phenomenal good old grateful dead cast episode about kind of the connection between St. Louis and the dead and about how there's a time where the dead talked about opening up a second, basically headquarters in St. Louis because they loved it there oh, wow. so much. Yeah. They had a huge fan base. It was the largest like producer city-wise of acid outside of San Francisco in the country. So there was like okay. a, a lot of headiness there and a lot of people who are interested in seeing them and also a great place in the middle of the country for them to kind of use as a launching point for tourists rather than San Francisco, having to fly all the way across the country to start a tour in New York or Boston or something like that. Yeah. And that fits with the, you know, aesthetic of St. Louis, which it's, I mean, it's literally, it's the, the gateway to the West, right? Have you ever been to the arch? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Arch is pretty neat. Yeah, it's cool to see. Um, so uh, they've played 12 shows at this specific venue at, at the Keel Auditorium, one earlier in 1979, uh, February 11th of this year. 
Uh, the first time played there was in 1969, and the last time played there was 1982. So it's kind of interesting. It really kind of spans not the whole length of the band's time, but I mean, I'll say this. The first time they played there included a cryptical envelopment and closed with We Bid You Goodnight, and the last time they played there opened with Feel Like a Stranger and included a CC Rider. So very, wow. <laughs> very different bands. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. So uh, it's funny. In the Listen to the River box set that came out two years ago, the first five shows were at the Fox Theater in St. Louis, and then the last two were at the Keel Auditorium. It's 71, 72, and 73. And in 72, Phil kind of lectures the crowd, and he's like, While we're testing our monitors, there might be something that could be said about trying to be nice to this place. In other words, don't stand on the seats or kick in the walls or uh, rip out the uh, ornaments. Seeing as how this is the only place we like to play around here. And if we can't come back here to this theater, we won't come back to this town, which means you'll have to go to Keel Auditorium and listen to Grand Funk Railroad. So consider it. So I think that they did like playing the Fox a little bit better, a more intimate vibe than the 10,500 capacity Keel Auditorium. Um, Great location for this venue, though, smack dab in downtown St. Louis, just about three blocks from Bush Stadium, which, Dave, as you know, is like right next to the arch. You know, it's that's yes. right in the heart of the city. Um, formerly the home of the St. Louis University Billikens and the St. Louis Hawks, now Atlanta Hawks of the NBA. Uh, this was a, a really kind of big venue in its heyday. Um, based on the info that I could find, it only hosted about 12 to 15 concerts a year in addition to lots of sports most notably wrestling. So I'm not a big wrestling oh. fan, but I know that people who are talk about St. Louis wrestling, that like St. Louis wrestlers had their own vibe. And before WWF originally kind of consolidated all of the wrestling of the country and brought it all under, under one big kind of tent, uh, there were just different little wrestling syndicates all around the country. St. Louis, famously the home of Ric Flair, um, was a, a huge one. There's a ton of really big wrestling in St. Louis. So this was a big home to that. Uh, there's also attached to this building is the Keel Opera House. So the front part of the building was the Opera House, and that has been rehabilitated and remains open today as the um, Stiffle Theater. I don't, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Apologies if I did not. Um, but when the auditorium was open, the opera house was the front half, the auditorium was the back half, and they could be simultaneously used because the stages were back to back with the audiences on either side of the building. So the acoustics wouldn't basically get messed up. I guess there's one thing. Oh, wow. Very yeah, cool. I know it is very, it's a really cool way to kind of maximize the space that you have um, and yeah. to be able to have two events going at the same time, I think. I guess there's a big famous event here where uh, Dwight Eisenhower spoke and they like they found some way to bring down the wall in between so that he could speak kind of in the round and just speak to people on both sides, which is kind of cool. Um, other events that I can find here, the earliest concert I can find a record of, this this venue was opened in April of 1934 and then kept going until April of 91. It was demolished shortly thereafter. The earliest show I can find, though, is from 1958, a Buddy Holly concert on April 15th. Some really big shows after that, though. Not only do you have all the Grateful Dead shows, June 1st, 1969, The Who, with a couple of small opening bands you may have heard of, Led Zeppelin and Joe Cocker. That would have been a monster show. Damn, yeah. The 1981 Rappers Convention, featuring the Sugar Hill Gang and Grandmaster Flash. Kind of cool. Very early days of hip-hop. 
And the most, like the latest in time show that I could find was Kiss in 1990. So, you know, this, this building saw a lot. Now, since it's been demolished, it was replaced by a building that's called the Enterprise Center, which is now the home of the St. Louis Blues. So that is the history of the building. We talked about the tour. We talked about the year in Grateful Dead history. All that's left to do is uh, get into the music. Well, it is a it is a Dave's pick, so I think we maybe could also talk about the the box, the CD. Yeah. Um, did you like it? And on, I did like it. I mean, red is one of my favorite colors. So the the prominence of the red cardinal, like flying around all over, um, I did like. And then they are on. You know, I'm I'm guessing here. Like I imagine that the stone bear was outside the Kiel Auditorium. I don't know. Correct. Yep. Okay. And in the background, and the cardinals are flying around the the bear. Yep. In the background, you can see this kind of these big pillars, which is the facade, like the front of the um of the Kiel Auditorium. This big bear statue was um outside in the front as well. I'm not sure if it's still there. It might be, um, but it was back in the heyday. And then, yeah, like you said. Cardinals flying around with one very prominent in the middle of the picture, Phoenix, um, rising up. Uh, I think that's kind of cool. So um, in the background of that, like behind the bear statue and even kind of creeping around the front of it, uh, you have this these bushes with um, orange and yellow flowers, which seems to be this artist's kind of aesthetic because the last one, there were, it was a very floral pattern in the front, which I thought was cool. Uh, and then on the inside of the uh, album, you have a big picture of the band setup. Um, it, it's interesting because it's 79. So you have Jerry on the left part of the stage, then Bob and then Phil and Brent on the right side with the drummers and their kind of, you know, one of the initial drum setups, like the big drums rig behind them, which looks great. The album notes were kind of interesting. Uh, Dave Lemieux talked about how they had thought about holding off on releasing anything from this tour, thinking about maybe a bigger release, like a box set. Um, but they knew that they wanted to do something from the earlier Brent era for this release. And they had been kind of circling this show for a long time. And and now was the time. Um, and I think they made a great decision. So now, talked about the album cover, talked about everything else. Let's get into it, shall we? Now I think we can get on down to Alabama. All right, so that was the uh, show opening song, Alabama Getaway. One of those um, Go to Heaven songs that uh, I mentioned are on this show. I think Alabama Getaway is the first track on, yeah, it is. It's the first track on that album. So, yeah. Brent is noticeable, like off the rip, like before they even get into the song, um, you can hear him. And like you can tell that it's Brent, I think, just like him oh, like yeah. kind of warming up his fingers on the keys. Um, so can I do one big picture mini complaint before we dive into everything? <laughs> yeah. So the beginning of this release, did you ever like fuck around with your parents' audio settings in their old car? Not like an old car, but like the car when you were a kid. Like treble and stuff? Right. We had a 2000 Honda Odyssey growing up with like all the big buttons and wheels that you could push for audio. The beginning of this sounds like you took just what you said, the treble and just cranked it all the way up. Cause you can hear Brent so clear. You can hear one of the guitarists and they kind of fluctuate and then you can hear the cymbals. And that's like 
kind of it for a little bit. Um, and then throughout the discs, there's like an inconsistent inconsistency on who's mixed high and low. But when it comes together, like when the mixes come together just right, those songs are like powerhouses. But there is a, they're scattered throughout. And unfortunately, I do think it's a little more prominent than not are inconsistently mixed and not like not sloppy not like they did a bad job mixing it they did the best they could with what is this 44 year old tapes <laughs> yeah like i mean the fact that we're getting it is excellent and great but in particular at the beginning of alabama getaway it's like oh my god brent like i can't hear anybody <laughs> else <laughs> well i do think that to be just completely fair to all of the master people, like the people who do the mastering. I know Jeffrey Norman is someone that Dave Lemieux always gives a shout out to. And I'm not exactly sure who taped this show now that I think about it. But in any case, I do think that part of it is also the, especially the symbols thing you're talking about is that Bill and Mickey were in love with the symbols on this show. They, they were doing so much on, yeah. on the symbols. Like it, it is very noticeable. And I also, I, I'll just say this as like a, another, it's not a complaint. It's just the nature of, you know, disband sometimes. I don't think this is a particularly great night for the drummers, to be honest. Um, I think that they are fine and there are times when they really find it and they're really locked in, but I would not say that this is like, you know, their best work. I completely agree. Yep. So with that being said, I do still really like this show. Um, and part of it, I mean, with the, you know, troubles that you talked about aside, I do really enjoy this Alabama getaway. I think that, um, the, the solo that he busts out um, in the beginning, it concludes around 2.15, he is really... Brent. Yeah, Brent yeah. Um, is very, very good. And then less than a minute later, he's into another really good solo. And Jerry uses that second one as a launching pad to get into some early theatrics of his own, which I thought was really good. Uh, but the most, my most favorite part about this song is the rip-roaring transition out and into... 100%. But, you know, I'm listening to this for the first time. Those complaints are forming in my head. And then this like slide right into promised land. I was like, Oh, yep. You got me. I was yeah. wrong. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that, that transition is tremendous and it's a sign of things to come because they have a few really, really good ones throughout the show. And then after that transition, Jerry just keeps the beat string growing and growing from Alabama to Missouri and then into someplace sublime beyond there. I mean, it's just excellent. Phil is very emphatic. He's not like dropping bombs. It's just that he's playing with emphasis and it sounds really great. I love Phil's playing on Promised Land. So this kind of one-two combo of Alabama getaway into Promised Land, I think they're a fitting one-two. And um, and I, I really like the way that they sound together. And I really like kind of, you know, like you said, it's I think it's a bit hard to hear Bobby in the mix on these two songs. Uh, and the drummers, you're mostly hearing cymbals, but Brent and Jerry and Phil, I think, are just playing so well on these this opening uh, duo. Yeah, I completely agree about Bob. And that's what's noticeable about the next song, Brown Eyed Women. That's the first time like I could finally hear him. Mm-hmm. And the way he's working with Jerry, especially at the beginning, was was really, really good. And I know I noted it. I was like, oh, finally, there's Bob. Yeah. There- yeah. So uh Bob comes in. You're right in a big way on brown eyed women. This is a a good brown eyed women. It's about six minutes long. I really like Brent's playing too. It's very dreamy, and I really like what he's bringing to the vocal mix in this song. 
Uh, yeah, been- me too. I love, I love Brent as a a backup vocalist. Like '80s Samson and Delilahs, I I adore for his backup vocaling, backup singing. I guess is the right word. And uh, yeah, same. I I love him when he just like wails away in support of Jerry. Yeah, I agree. And in support of Bobby, he, they have good vocal chemistry. Um, and I know that they had been playing together a little bit before Brent joined the band, so it makes sense. But like those two do sound very good together. And Brent and Jerry together as backing vocalists also sound really good. Like all of these guys just sound great together. You know, I, I guess that there were some people in the beginning who were very skeptical of Brent joining the band. Um, I would think that 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 probably would have been resolved pretty quickly in his time. Cause I mean, this is less than eight months in and he already sounds great. And I mean, also he's already playing his own songs. Like later in the set, we get right. easy to love you. So, I mean, he, he made himself a member of the band really quickly and I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. So yeah. What, what else do you have about Brown Eyed Women? I didn't have much. I just thought it was, you know, kind of a, a fine version of a song that we like a lot. One thing I did notice is that, Jerry was doing like hesitation notes throughout both, both while playing the guitar and then also like singing on the mic. He was waiting on the, the, at the upbeat, I guess it's called the and beat, like not the downbeat, not the beginning of the note, but near the end of the note. And then he would like emphasize that with playing or like on the mic, you know, it sounds like he's waiting that extra half second to sing. That's something that I noticed that, you know, he's he's having fun and tweaking a little bit a song that at this point in their career, they've pl- probably played like 400 times and would play another 400. So next song is Cassidy, uh, five minutes and 32 seconds. I saw that runtime and I was expecting this to be like a really kind of tight Cassidy, but it's much more complex and jammy than I was expecting. I think this is a very, very good version of this song. And it's an early, I mean, Bob sounds good on Promised Land, but he kind of messes up some of the lyrics. This one is a very strong vocal performance, and I think it's a sign of things to come with the way that he's singing throughout this show. Uh, he's got a lot of heart in his singing, I think, on this night, and you can really feel it in Cassidy. Uh, but there's also just some really good and kind of deep jamming going on. Uh, I thought this was a, a very good first set, Cassidy. This was the first song where I thought you could kind of hear Phil a little bit better and hear what he was bringing. So I liked it in that regard. I wasn't really passionate about this Cassidy. I do agree with what you said, though. When I saw the runtime, I was like, oh, they're going to go real hot, real quick. And and it kind of jammed out a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, God, speaking of jammed out, then there's a 12 minute and 33 second long Road <laughs> Jimmy. Yes, here we go. So it's interesting. The next two songs are Road Jimmy, a song that I have declared my love for many times on this show. And then after that, New Minglewood Blues, which we haven't talked about in so long. And that is, you know, that's one of your jams. So we kind of, I think we can kind of each take the floor for a minute and talk about our our songs. I'll start with Road Jimmy. I think that this was played at what? Oh, I just, I said, bring it on. Oh, okay. (laughs) So I think this is played at a very stately pace. They're not in any rush to to let Jimmy row. Um, they are really taking their time and enjoying this song. The very kind of slippery sounding slide guitar that Jerry's working with is just a delight. I really, really liked it a lot. This my is my favorite part of the song too, was that slide guitar. Yeah. The problem with this song is the drummers don't always have it. 
12 minutes and 33 seconds at this odd backbeat is a tough thing to do, I think. And especially if there are some intoxicants in the mix, potentially, um, that would also harm one's ability to do that. And there are some times when I think they really kind of lose that beat a little bit. Um, so I, I hate to say it, but this is not my favorite road, Jimmy. Um, I thought that this was okay, but, um, I didn't think it was a great version, but I did think that the slide guitar from Jerry was great. And I think that, um, you know, Phil, I don't know. I I've never been like Phil is what makes Ro Jimmy. That's never been a thing that I've thought. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I, I didn't particularly notice him for better or for worse uh, during this performance. The real thing that stood out to me was was Jerry's slide. I thought it was a really strong last three minutes of music. I thought it was a very not spectacular first nine minutes of music. I think, um, I think that's fair. So I what think do- that the song that comes next was a little bit better nine minutes of music. Um, I actually don't know if it's nine minutes, but close to that out right now. Yeah. Uh, this Tell me new, everything. I, I literally took no, no notes. I figured you'd have this oh, okay. covered on new Minglewood. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So what'd you think of the like country twang rather than the bluesy crunch at the beginning, which was weird to me because we're in a city known for its blues music and we were getting a little, a little country. Yes. But on um shakedown street the album there was all new minglewood blues at the end of that record and so i think that that's kind of the preferred arrangement that they're playing it with in right. in this era so it didn't like shock or appall me but i i don't know i i thought it was i enjoyed the sound of it i know that you are a bluesy new minglewood blues person as the title would indicate i don't think that you're you know out on a limb for that so <laughs> is that is this countrified it's not it's not a complaint it's it's just more like interesting to know it was you know it's fun and different and i enjoyed it i was not a complaint what else was fun and interesting was like finally you could hear phil not just like join the mix but actually rip through the mix Mm -hmm. and it was like finally we're getting some bass like shuddering in my ears this is it's about damn time yeah. Uh, and speaking of ringing through your ears, Brent is like nowhere to be found for the first three minutes. And then he's like, oh, oh shit, it's my turn for a solo. And he comes in, he breaks down the door. It's like the Kool-Aid man barged through the wall and just like <laughs> exploded into your ear. And uh, I thought that this was the turn on this first disc from kind of an just okay show to like now we're getting hot so this is what i call this we are, we have entered the powerhouse run You're definitely right about that. Yeah, and this is the diving board. This is not like, I'm not here to throw praise on this. Is like, oh, just this is just a, a must-have new Minglewood. But I, I don't know. With like this, you know, the road Jimmy before it, I mean, 12 minutes of a slower jam, the kind of 
lack of fill in the mix before this, the lack of like strong bass and Bob being inconsistent. This was the first song where it was like, okay, here we go. Yeah, definitely. I I agree that um that Brent kind of brings the heat. And you have long told us that it's the keys that make a Minglewood what it can be. So uh, I'm not shocked to hear you say that that was kind of where it started to turn. But yeah, man, the next and last four songs of the first set, banger after banger after banger after banger, <laughs> all killer, no, no filler. The next song is Candyman. This is not a song that I'm ever going to tell you is like my favorite Grateful Dead song. You know, it's not even really a song that when I see it on a set list, I frankly perk up that much because it's kind of pretty typically like a pretty steady and stable song. Like I can't tell you like, oh, my favorite version of Candyman is this or like my favorite era of Candyman is, you know, 71, you know, something like that. This is a great version, like as about as good a version as I can remember hearing. I think that it reaches a really great crescendo around like 645 during the last chorus. Very soulful singing, um, especially from Jerry and from Brent in the background. And Jerry's tone on this song is just perfect. I mean that both guitar-wise and vocally. He is just, he's bringing exactly what I would ever want from this song. I think it's a, a phenomenal performance. And it, you know, building off of that kind of powerful end to, to New Minglewood, it bridges us in from, you know, kind of a hot song, gives you a little bit of a break of like a slower song that you can maybe, you know, sl- do a slower dance to. And then we're back into some heat to close out the set. I think that it's great setless construction, number one. And number two, it's just played very, very well. You've put it perfectly. I, I got nothing to add. That's that's almost word for word my analysis of Candyman. The hot plant and continues into a little lazy lightning supplication. Yeah, so uh, the combo, the two songs combined, make up about nine plus minutes of music. Lazy Lightning is three and a half on the you know CD track time. Really good type version, I thought. Um, I've always kind of preferred Donna on this song, to be honest. Yeah, there's also like one point where uh, Bob and Jerry are singing completely different verses. <laughs> I was like, are are they like a little drunk still? I didn't even notice the vocal flub, to be honest. Um, I. I did notice Jerry and Brent's backing vocals during the My Lightning 2 part. Yes, I I noted that specifically as like a a highlight of this. Yeah, they sound great. It actually, it honestly made me like question, like maybe I do like the Brent versions better, but I I still think I like Donna's versions better. But I did think this was an excellent, excellent Brent era version of this song. And then we were talking about a great transition earlier. The transition into supplication is very subdued, but phenomenal. It sounds to me like a cat stretching out in a sunspot on a lazy Saturday afternoon. It's just, you know, enjoying the space, not in any rush, doesn't have anywhere to go, any place to be, just filling it up and enjoying enjoying being there. Um, I thought that it was an excellent transition. And then Jerry starts playing these tight little spirals of notes that kind of actually remind us where we are and what we're listening to. Um, and that's the beginning of just a monster bead string that carries us all the way home. Um, you get a slow burn that kind of at like, I don't know, at like 115, Bob and Jerry together are just playing so well. And as much as I criticized the drummers earlier, they are locked in at the beginning of this song. Um, I think that throughout this set, when they're playing toms together, they sound better than when they start getting more in love with the cymbals. 
And because this is such a Tom-centric song at the beginning, it just sounds cleaner to me than the cymbals. I think that there's something, maybe you're right, it's just like the way the cymbals are being recorded. It just sounds busy and not as clean. Whereas when they're on the toms, it's a very clean sound, which I love. And so I think it ends up just being a really nice version. And and I will actually give a special shout out to the drummers from the 505 mark on this song to the end. So like the last 50 seconds, I think it's a great example of what makes Billy and Mickey so special when they're doing things together and they're playing right. Like it, it is like the exemplification of they are more than the sum of their arms. They're doing things that makes them sound like an octopus rather than two drummers playing drums together. So I, as you can tell, was very high on the supplication portion of this. And I, I thought that it was excellent and it was stuck in my head for like the week that we were getting ready for this show. Number 84, Lazy Lightning in the Supplication on Heady Version. Masses liked it too. They liked it, but they didn't love it. Uh, you know, I'd like the masses to be a little bit higher on it. I got to well, be honest with you. I'll caveat that except for Shakedown Street, there was almost nothing even on Heady Version before this re- official release. Wow. So the fact that it was even there... Speaks there's kind of an there's kind of an asterisk here like the fact that it was even there i don't think a lot of people knew about this show dude yeah i think you're right i think this is a a like not very celebrated tour and so the show wasn't as as beloved as it as it could be you got anything else on supplication i got nothing man you crushed it thank you so deal is the last song of the set really zippy version super upbeat like quick and fun I think it's it's not even close. It's Jerry's best plane of the first set. Like there are a couple note misses in Alabama Getaway and Brown Eyed Women and and somewhere in Cassidy, but he didn't miss a damn note in Deal. Uh, he's dialed in. It the drums like they got very close to sneakery in the middle, and then mm-hmm. I think they actually kind of brought it down. Uh, they didn't quite get into a bad place. They got close and then they they reined it in a little bit. And to the point I was making at the end of Lazy Lightning, this song wasn't even on Heady Version the day of the release. Um, so it has climbed from not present to number 243, but it'll keep climbing because this deal is, it's everything you'd want. And it's a really kind of nice bookend. You know, at the beginning, you have kind of a rock in Alabama getaway and then, you know, an early rock and roll song in Promised Land. And then you get a nice rock and roll song at the end of the set with with this one, with Deal. Yeah, my only my only complaint about this song would just be that the drummers are not consistent with the tempo. They speed up a lot in the middle. And then, like you said, they, <laughs> they, they kind of, I think, realize that they're kind of out above their skis and they slow it down a little bit. But that's a minor complaint, and it's a credit to Jerry that he kept up with them the whole time and was able to kind of modify what he was doing to match what they were doing. Um, and and Bob and Phil, too. Just, you know, signs of what great musicians they are.
So that concludes disc one. They fit the entire first set, all 10 tracks onto one disc. And that brings hey, us. Hey, speaking of that, by the way, they fit the entire show in order, in the right way on discs one, two, and three. Yeah. They haven't done that in a while. So a round of applause for the people putting on the disc and Dave Lemieux, uh, come on the show. But <laughs> yeah, no, no one's allowed to complain about the structuring because it's, it's There's nothing to complain linear about. and perfect. Yep. I actually had a note uh, later on. I was going to tee you up to, I knew you would be really excited about that. <laughs> um, so uh, I will delete that note from my, uh, from my outline because you're right. And it actually, as much as I have been, uh, you know, kind of the counter pull to you on that being like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal, Dave. Uh, it was nice. I will admit that. It was nice. And it shows that you are allowed to split up drums and space. And That's nothing true. bad is going to happen to you. And you can include just a space, no drums from a whole nother show. And nothing bad is going to happen to you. I don't know if they thought something bad was going to happen to them. Like, you're making, I mean, they didn't say like, if we do this, we're going to be subject to seven years of bad luck or something like that. I think they just didn't want to. But I appreciate your reminding them that nothing bad would happen to them. The, the members of Grateful Dead Industries. Um, yeah, so disc two is the beginning of set two, and it goes through to your point drums. We get a cut, and then we're into space at the beginning of disc three. Uh, I that didn't bother me at all either, so I'm, I'm with you on that. Not, I think that they can not at all, I think they can keep doing that moving forward. Set two begins with the longest track, no, the second longest track of the show, Shakedown Street. 14 minutes and 22 seconds, the Shakedown Street is a monster. Phil Bombs rattle us to our core to get the proceedings started in set two. But for me, the high point of this song is the jam in the back half. It is very compelling. Um, they Are you really, talking about like the eight-minute mark? Yes-ish? The like, Same. And then it's like four minutes of them jamming, or maybe even longer. It might be like five minutes of them jamming from there where it's like, it's Shakedown adjacent, but... <laughs> It's very exploratory, don't you think? I do. Yeah, this is some some interesting, like disco funk exploration. That's uh, great. And one of the uh, one of the more danceable tunes of the whole release in yeah. that in that like that field of music. Totally, I could see if you were at this show being like really kind of in a trance during that part and just enjoying the groove getting into it and kind of losing track of space time and you know where your body ends in the show the space that you're in begins i thought it was a very very nice version of shakedown street and dave lemieux said something in the at this i guess for this release a lakeside chat that kind of surprised me he was like this is i think going to be a really good one because we haven't really released that many shakedown streets and i heard that was like we haven't released that many shakedown streets but then i looked into it and i forgot to write down the number like a buffoon but i believe and i i'm pretty sure i'm correct about this that in the entire run of dick's picks releases i believe there were only two shakedown streets of the 36 whoa yeah in the road trips i found a couple more i think three more maybe um but not that many so he's right i mean there are not that many shakedown streets that have been released like if you search shakedown street on apple music or on spotify 
way more Dead and Company versions will show up than Grateful Dead versions because all their you know their entire backlog is on that that service now those services. So that was interesting to me. I had not really thought about that, but it was nice to get a really good one um, to start the second set. And much like set one, set two begins with a really nice transition. They drop into Samson like it's a warm bath at the end of this song. <laughs> yeah, they do that note hold at the end of Shakedown, and then the drummers start kicking it for for Samson. I this is where like that trebly mix kind of bothered me a little bit again because the toms are not they're not like super clear or even super loud really which you kind of want at the beginning of the samson right you you want your heart beating and rattling around in your cage because the drums are you know kicking you along and it's it's again it's cymbal heavy which Mm -hmm. it doesn't sound bad by any means but it's not it doesn't it doesn't make you shake to your core like a good samson should yeah. You know, there is one silver lining to that though, and that is that you can hear Phil very clearly. He's playing a bouncy bass at the beginning of this song. He takes like a couple beats to come in, but it's really delightful, especially like around the start of the first verse. If you if you try to lock into what Phil's doing when the first verse starts, I just couldn't recommend it more highly. He sounds wonderful. Um, also, I think this is like peak Bobby singing on a Samson. Like he sounds so good on this song very like confident and like voluminous, I guess uh, his singing, I think is great for a Samson and Delilah. And on adding onto that point, I don't think Brent is quite there where he is yet. Like if you, if, I mean, if you listen to like an 85 Samson, I mean, Brent is like belting. giving it his all in the background. Yeah. Belting out. He's not there yet, but you're right. Bob did sound good. I would be remiss if I did not tell you that the Shakedown Street was number 54 on Heady Version and the song from this release with the most votes. Wow. Okay. I mean, that that's not shocking to me per se, but uh, it's good to know. So we have Big Shakedown, a powerful Samson, although to your point, we can't really get the full, the full force of it. And then the next song is High Time. It feels like they're taking a breath after opening up the set with so much power. But Jerry's singing is just pristine on this song. Much like Candyman, uh, it's a song from an album that I love that is not my favorite song off the album. It's not one that I'm typically like, you know, clamoring for in a show, but I really like this. And it was, I should have looked this up, but I'm not sure how often they played this song this early in set two. Um, it seemed mm. a bit unusual to me in a surprising and interesting way. Um, so I liked it. I thought that it was, I thought that it was a nice performance to kind of give everyone a breath after the powerful shakedown and Samson. And I think that this song and the next song really do give us a break before they get, they bring like the power level back to an 11. (laughs) Yeah. You know who else loved it? The crowd, like the first noticeable crowd cheer on the release when Jerry started singing, like the crowd was amped up for an early set to high time. Number 61 high time on heady version. Wow. Okay. Nice. So the next song is Easy to Love You, Brent Midland's song that was released on Go to Heaven, uh, I, which I would, I mean, that makes it his first song with the band. I believe I looked this up and the first time they played it was in August of 1979. So they've been playing it for a few months. Um, they're getting used to it. I thought this was a lovely version of this song. Brent's keys are great. His singing is pristine. Um, he's. Yeah. It's almost like he's taking care to be like a very good singer on it. Like he's, do you realize he's the new guy and he yes. doesn't want to mess it up? And I think that can 
come across as like he's playing it safe. Mm-hmm. But I think he's what I what I think he was trying to do was he's like people don't really know this song yet. Yeah, like, this song hasn't been released yet, so so I need it to sound good. Yeah, you know, before the studio version comes get them to like it. Also, by all accounts, Brent was a very sensitive soul. You know, he didn't really probably want people to not like one of his songs. And so, especially at this point in time, you know, being very careful to guard it and make sure that it sounds really good when he's playing it. And it does sound really good. Um, I thought this was a really, really nice version of this was, did this rate on heady version at all? Not even there, man, man. I mean, I, are there a lot of easy to love use on heady version? I ask that because of all of the Grateful Dead songs I've ever had conversations about, I can't tell you that I've ever been like talking to someone on the lot or something. And we've been like, all right, well, what's your favorite easy to love you? You know, that's never really come up, which is a shame because this is a really nice song. It is a sweet song. There are only 14 versions on Heady Version, yeah. so it doesn't even fill up a full page. Yeah, haters so, in the building. Right. I'm not <laughs> offended by it not being there, but no, me yeah, neither. Some love. Yeah, but we should. All right, so the next song, and we get into this other like powerhouse section of the show here, is Terrapin Station. This is the longest song of the show at 1441, so just a few seconds longer than Shakedown Street. It's also been the longest fucking time since we talked about this great song. Do you know when the last time we talked about a Grateful Dead Terrapin Station on this program was? I don't. Tell me. It was the july 1978 show that we did as like our hey we're going to be taking a summer hiatus for july 4th last year it's been over a year since we got to talk about a terrapin station wow since then i've seen it played live twice (laughs) (laughs) and we've talked about it zero times that's wild um we've seen it together since then right we've talked about dead and company terrapins but like a grateful dead terrapin and always this ever a great Grateful Dead Terrapin station. Tell me about it. From the jump, Brent's making his presence known. He's very comfortable with this song, which is great um, because the keys are an important part of kind of adding to the texture of what's going on in Terrapin Station. But what we all come to Terrapin for is Jerry. I mean, let's not get it twisted. That's the main event. And his solo beginning at 313 is absolutely classic. It has the laid back mood that kind of all but forces you to bob your head. And then starting at like 353, Jerry starts to venture down the neck a little bit more for some more adventurous, you know, additions to his bead string that he's working on. It's just great stuff. As dramatic a Terrapin as you would really want. And then also Brent at six minutes to seven minutes ish, just twinkling away and kind of continuing to set that mood of like you're, you know, a I almost just said you're a lost sailor traveling toward this Terrapin station, (laughs) but stay tuned. I know, but, um, but it really does feel that way. It feels like an adventure. Um, and it's, I just love this version. Maybe if not for what comes after this, it would have been probably my favorite moment of the show. Oh, wow. I was not as high on it as you. I think what happened, I'm going to be honest with you. I think I saw it on the set list and I was like, oh my God, we haven't talked about that in so long. <laughs> and I built it up as this like grand powerhouse. And it's a little, it's a little slower. It's a little like it gentler. Is. And I wanted to have like my face melted off and that didn't happen on the first listen. Fair. I thought that this song was actually like a good metaphor for the bigger show as a whole. Cause this is like a weird, the jam in the song is like in the middle. Yeah. And 
kind of what we're getting to is that this middle section, this like pre drums set two, which is normally like four or five songs is eight songs. So like this Terrapin kind of speaks to a bigger theme of the whole show of like, we're going to get meaty in the middle and we're going to get weird with it. And, and it is not nice. It's yeah. the number 103 Terrapin on heady version. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I hear what you're saying. Also, having heard Terrapin live twice this summer, there's something about the power of the song when you're in the barn that's tough to match listening on a CD or in headphones. Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. It's not to say that it can't be a wonderful listening experience because I really, as you could tell by my, you know, rapturous praise, uh, I really, really did enjoy this. But there's something about in person this song when it clicks. It is as dramatic and as captivating a song as the Grateful Dead play, I would argue. So, uh, anyways, they play Terrapin right into Lost Sailor. Not a particularly noteworthy transition, I didn't think, but they they do play it right into it. Lost Sailor debuted on August 4th of 1979. Um, it's also, this song and Sand of Circumstance are back-to-back, the beginning of the B-side of Go to Heaven. Uh, they played this song somewhat regularly between the debut in mid-79 through the mid-80s, and then only a few times in 85 and 86 before they retired it for good. So only 145 times played total, Lost Sailor and Saint of Circumstance. I really like this Lost Sailor quite a bit. I'm just realizing right now that I have very few notes on it because I was just really enjoying it a lot. This song and Saint of Circumstance were both stuck in my head all week. Saint of Circumstance gets stuck in my head like every time I listen to it. The the first Dead and Company Saint of Circumstance I ever got was SPAC Night 2 of this year. Mm-hmm. And that like guitar riff was in my head for like a month. And not in a bad so way. Catchy. I really enjoyed it. It's just so goddamn catchy. Bob knows what he's doing. It's an earworm. It really is. It just like wiggles its way into your brain and stays there. Because that's the same thing that was stuck in my head. I mean, let's let's hear it actually right now. Yeah, I mean, the Sailor Saint here is like, what is it, like 13, 12 minutes long, just about, and it's just great stuff. One thing that I never noticed, and I don't know how the hell I didn't notice this before now, is that in Lost Sailor, they reference the Dark Star, and then in Saint of Circumstance, they reference it again. And so it's like, it feels like such a Grateful Dead-ass song. Like, obviously (laughs) it is, like Bob Weir and John Perry Barlow wrote it, so you know, it is a, as authentically a Grateful Dead song as exists, but that like kind of nod to Dark Star. Um, and, you know, they're referencing the Dark Star, like, you know, they're not referencing the song. But to me, I guess just because I've always been so captured by the music that I have not paid super close attention to the lyrics. And then I listened to that, this Sailor Saint like seven times in the last week. And so I was more picking up on different things every time I listened. Um, the, my favorite part of this whole suite, this whole two-song suite, is the first minute of Saint of Saint of Circumstance, 
Um, I think it's just a real Jerry showcase. And then around 215, he takes it to just like another level. Um, he His playing is so powerful. And the vocal chemistry between Bob and Brent in Sand of Circumstance, the timing t- timestamp that I wrote down is 145. It's just great stuff. So overall, I thought that this was a great one-two punch, uh, Sailor Saint. What were, what were your thoughts? I agree with a lot of what you said. My favorite part was a little bit later. The buildup to that three minute, 30 second mark when they launch back into the the Saint riff and then the Bob and Jerry vocal harmony for that, like uh, the I'm going to go for it for sure part that has been stuck in my head all week. I thought the two of them were like excellent on their vocal harmonies, the rest of the song and the they masses weren't. agreed number 85 combo. Which really, again, to your point about how few songs from this show exist on Heady Version, I think really says a lot. Um, and I bet that's going to keep going up and up as people get more familiar with this show and they keep voting it up. So. Yeah. So what comes next is awesome. Yes, I agree. <laughs> we have jam into drums into space. Really, really great stuff. And basically 20 plus minutes of very interesting jamming. Um, do you want to just tackle it all together? Or do you want to go bit by bit? Uh, let's go bit by bit. All let's right. break it down a little bit because the jam is not spacey enough to be like a pre-drums space. It's hot enough to be its its own thing, which is why I think it's labeled jam. Yeah, But it's not like a little, you know, 90 second fool around before they get into drums it's like Um, what seven and a half it's almost eight minutes eight minutes of just like jerry getting weird with it in in a good way like that little noodle walk down he keeps doing throughout that will like come around later in space too just it just was excellent and the the back half of this does feel a little spacey where it gets a little deconstructed but like the first three or four minutes of this jam i was I was really enjoying. Yeah, I agree. I also think Phil deserves a shout out because I think he's leading a lot of what they do in that jam and taking them to some exploratory places. His bass sounds wonderful throughout it. Um, yeah, it's I thought also this- just the idea of it, like they're improving, they're getting weird. Yep. You know, they're not like they're rigid, rigid, structured. You know, they never wore this, but like it's not like a corporate Grateful Dead show, right? Like they're <laughs> they're gonna go out to space before space. Like they're gonna jam and get weird after some hot saint of circumstance. And I, yeah. I love that idea. I agree. I mean, let's be honest as they, they got later into the eighties and nineties, it was more rare that there would be something like this. So this is right. still in the era where they would do a, an eight minute jam pre drums that just captures your imagination and takes you to places that you weren't expecting to go. So this drums gets off to a very interesting start. There's like, it's a very acoustic sound in the beginning I would love to have seen a video of what they were doing on stage because there's almost like some like strumming going on from the sounds of it at the beginning. Did you pick up on that? I didn't. No. No. I got a little bit of a tribal vibe from yes. the drums. I agree. That's what I mean by like a very acoustic sound. Like it doesn't sound as like I I don't want to say like necessarily bongos or congas or something like that, but it's not the sound of like the full grandeur of this drum setup that they have when you look at the stage, then it gets there, you know, by the mid and end of this five minute and 30 second drums, we really do get into the Tom pounding fireworks that we're accustomed to in a, 
into drums. Mm-hmm. But at the beginning, it's much more sparse and like you're saying, kind of tribal sounding, uh, which is very interesting. And I, I really liked it quite a bit. And then we move into a space that builds and builds and builds. And Jerry continues that downward arpeggio, I guess you'd call it, from the jam earlier around the five minute mark of space. Like he brings that theme back and they keep building, keep building. And then, holy shit, for this gets hot for a space. Like, is this what 79 spaces are like? I don't know. I mean, the the other one is also pretty good, but I don't think it's as 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 interesting as this one. Yeah. The, I the totally one we get later on this disc. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, this is like a hot freeform jam. And then yes. there's like it ends with these swirling, whirling winds, like the, you know, the the destruction has happened and the winds blow the cloud away. And then you're you're ready to move into the post-space suite. But yeah. I was really high on the space. I agree. In the beginning and actually all the way throughout, there are symbols. So that kind of is to your point about like a jam more so than a true space. Like the drummers or at least one drummer is still on stage from the sounds of it. And I think that that adds to the texture. Whatever Brent's doing sounds great. There's like kind of Pink Floydish sounding guitar tones, I think, um, in the beginning and middle. But the other note, the other like kind of quote that i had in here of like what sound i thought that like was echoing in my head is the willy wonka and the chocolate factory scene when they're on that like demonic river cruise and like there's like whooshing and scary sounds and there's a video of a chicken getting its head cut off and it's very intense for a a children's movie or a, a child's film as my wife calls them um and then yeah you just get these like you're saying these like whooshing deep space sounds at the end. It sounds like the nuclear fallout from morning dew is happening on stage right before our very ears. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So I agree with you. A very compelling space, seven minutes and 42 seconds long. And I thought it was excellent. What did you think about the black Peter that they go into after space? Well, I think we have to tell our black Peter story from the (laughs) summer tour uh, where we were, See, well, standing next to a woman in Raleigh who had been to the Charlotte show that I had went to the couple nights before and the Atlanta show and and the Atlanta show. And she was, you know, obviously singing the praises of the Atlanta show. And I was like, yeah, and Charlotte was good, too. Like, I I really enjoyed Charlotte a couple nights ago. She was like, yeah, but they played Black Peter and and Black Peter can suck a dick. Yeah, she said. That and then she said, "Worst song ever, Black Peter." And in my head, I was like, "That's not even the worst Grateful Dead song." <laughs> right. Like, get out of here! <laughs> the worst song ever. That's pretty strong. I was thinking about that exact story when I saw this on the set list, and then when it came on to, I was like, "That lady's tight." If she got, if she picked yeah. up volume forty-seven, <laughs> she is not thrilled about this song in the not set happy. list. Yeah, because it's what an eleven-minute Black Peter. Yeah, it's a monster one. Eleven minutes and forty-three seconds. I liked it. I thought that the singing was particularly soulful and that the organ from Brent was very tender. Uh, I really enjoyed that too. Nice guitar from Bobby and more kind of subdued bass from Phil. I really loved kind of the overall tapestry that we got from kind of what everyone was doing. And then the solo that Jerry gets into around 1015 just rules. He's on yeah. fire. He's getting ready for I Need a Miracle, which they play after this. And um, 
So it's kind of a sharp closeout to a definitively not fiery Black Peter for the first 10 minutes. And then that last two, they really pick up the pace in a very interesting way, I think. I completely agree. This Black Peter did not suck a dick. It did not. It was pretty good. So yes, I I liked it quite a bit. And then a nice I Need a Miracle afterward, much shorter, only a little bit over four minutes long. I like that they broke Black Peter all the way down before they yeah, get to us. Same. And it does make the transition. I don't think it actually makes the transition that clunky on its face. But what we're about to talk about in about 30 to 45 seconds when we wrap up I Need a Miracle, this transition looks bad in comparison to what comes next. But my only other critique for Miracle is Bob is like not there all the time on the mic. Mm -hmm. And it's not like he's forgetting the words and not singing. Like, I mean, he's not physically next to the microphone and you can't like hear it come in until like halfway through the, the lyric. And I think that's because he's like running around the stage, having a great time. Not because he's like forgetting the words. That's my theory. Anyway, I think it's a good theory. When you do hear his voice like loud and clear, it sounds very strong and very good. Mm -hmm. So I do think that it's a good vocal performance from him. And Brent's backing vocals are excellent too. So a nice vocal performance on I Need a Miracle. And Jerry has a solo that starts around the three minute mark. That's just wonderful. Very bubbly, very distinctly Jerry. Oh, no, it's okay. So yeah, just, I just think a very distinctively Jerry solo. And um, Brent's organ underneath it is great. It kind of turns it all into a very zippy conclusion with Phil driving the train toward Bertha. Yeah, Jerry's, I don't know. I think Jerry might be driving it. Like Jerry totally winds into the different key out of mm-hmm. Miracle. And it's like, like setting the tempo for the drummers. Like, hey, this is how quickly we're playing Bertha. I, I, I got that Jerry was driving it more than Phil. Interesting. Yeah, you could be right. I picked up on Phil in like, I don't, I didn't mark down the second mark, but I had that Phil started taking a turn toward Bertha a few seconds earlier. But I don't know if that means a few Hmm. seconds earlier than the other band members, or maybe my note meant a few seconds earlier than like the track changing on the CD from Miracle to track four Bertha. That's probably what I meant. So I will take your word for it that he was the one who is kind of leading the charge, which makes sense because it's his solo that's kind of taking center stage for the last minute and change of the song. Yeah. Number 75, Miracle on Heady Version. So okay. not bad. Yeah. And then this this Bertha, man. This transition is one of the best I think I've ever heard. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> miracle to bertha which by the way bertha to like end a bertha good loving combo to end set two yeah that's so weird and cool it is but like this transition was such a powerhouse it was so miracle into bertha is not uncommon they played that combo 43 times but it's almost always at the beginning of set two not at the end so that's to your point it's so strange to get bertha into good loving Good love, and also they only closed set two with that fourteen times out of the five hundred times they played it. So, oh my gosh, 
Very uncommon set to closer. This is a one out of one set to closing sequence. Bertha into Good Lovin' to close out set two. Never before, never again. Whoa. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, this Bertha is great. Like kind of like the deal earlier, just a very fast zippy pace with just really great jamming. That first big Jerry solo that ends around three minutes. Um, sorry, it doesn't end around three minutes. I thought it was ending around three minutes because that's in a typical Bertha. <laughs> In a typical Bertha, that's where it would end. And instead, he just takes it to a second phase with even higher highs than what he had done before. I thought it was tremendously good. And Brent's organ is extremely triumphant, especially... Oh, so good. Yeah, right before yeah. the Any More Breakdown at the end, which is a great end cap to this song, as always. Um, his organ at that part of the song in particular is just spectacular. I, I got nothing to add. It was upbeat, roaring along. At, it was excellent cooking like a, a yeah cooking bertha and they slide right into a, a good lemon they don't go to the like normal opening good loving riff they they bust out something interesting for like 10 seconds before they then like end that measure with the normal good loving riff into bob singing it reminded me I, of La Bamba. that made me like it more reminded you of what la bamba by richie valens yeah I didn't put that together until you just said it, but yeah. So I got so many Richie Valens vibes throughout this song. That intro part, Bob's intro, Bob's playing during that part absolutely smokes. And then his playing from like 245 to 307 is when I marked it is fantastic. And then right after that, Jerry, this is what I wrote in my notes, rips off a La Bamba ass solo. Like his solo sounds very Valens-esque then too. So I don't know, maybe just like another early rock and roll luminary was floating through their mind as they were playing Good Lovin' and they decided to kind of channel Richie. They also channel another old friend because Bob says at one point, a little ad lib, like a friend of mine used to say, which to me is a shout out to Pigpen um, during his rap. And I thought that was really, really cool. I mean, it's been six plus almost seven years since Pigpen had died at this point in time. And this is obviously a Pigpen song in its heyday. And now it's a Bob song. I love that he gives a shout out to a friend of mine. Uh, it's a very subtle thing. And it's really, really actually very sweet, I thought. So I loved this as a set to closer. I thought it was a great version of Good Lovin'. Completely agree. Nothing to add. The encore was Don't Ease Me In. Mm. man so fuck i meant to look up how often they played this as an encore i'm gonna let you go ahead and tell us your thoughts on don't ease me and i'm gonna look that up unfortunately I, my thoughts don't give you enough time really my thoughts are just some good hot sweet music that's all i wrote because <laughs> <laughs> it is it's just i mean they are just moving at they're not quite as quick as that Bertha. They're moving at a really, really good tempo for Adonis. They're all, you know, singing and belting it out. And and they get they get nice and hot for the encore. And then they they say goodnight. I actually don't have a way of looking that up either, unfortunately. So ah uh, well. Um it's not meant to be. So Donis Mean strikes me as a bit of an odd um encore and i think that in his lakeside chat dave lemieux says something to that effect of like you wouldn't expect to hear this as an encore but here it is uh, i thought it was a, just another brent banger on the organ throughout this very short song 
the Jerry solo that starts at 215 gets a chef's kiss for me. Great. Don't ease me in solo. And some of the tightest drumming of the whole show. Uh, maybe it's that the mix is just exactly right during the song. Maybe it's just that the drummers were locked in, but. Well, I think they were locked in going back to, I need a miracle. Yeah. Like I, I think that they were, they really ended the show on a, on a good place. A good heater. Yeah. I also like the little um, announcement that the guy made on stage before they came back out about like, maybe they'll come back for an encore if we cheer for them really yeah. loud. Like that was some really kind of nice Midwestern um, stuff right there. So I thought it was uh, a good end to a good show. I really enjoyed it. It makes me want to explore more of 79 and see more of kind of those early Brent days, what they were doing on some of those silky, silky, crazy, crazy nights with a young Brent Midland in the mix. So we are talking about this show, but we're also talking about this release. You want to give some high level thoughts about the Uptown Theater segment. Uh, the the last five tracks on this album are from the post space second set on night two at the Uptown Theater in Chicago, Illinois on 12 479. So less than a week before um, that show was partially released on Dave's Picks volume 31 in 2019, which was the complete show from 12 three plus just two songs, the estimated profit into Franklin's tower from 12, four. So then this mm. is like, Oh, well we know we're never going to release that full show. Cause we've already released parts of it. We've got some extra space on the CD. Let's give you all your money's worth and add some more songs. Um, I thought it was a great segment of music. Yeah. Just as I beat you to one of the notes to ask for the end of the end of what we do here, you just beat me. I was going to ask you, had the Franklin's Tower from the show ever been officially released? And it has. The Franklin's Tower from the show is very highly rated on Heady Version. It's number 14 for like standalone Franklin's. Wow. Yeah. So I was going to ask you that and and mystery solved. But high level for what we got here at the end of disc three. Did they mention anything on like the release or social media or even in the liner notes that there was just a little segment from a different show. I don't remember seeing anything about that. So this was like a pleasant surprise to me. Um, the I, space we kind of watch, well, I, I guess I should let you answer the question. I just asked you. <laughs> <laughs> Dave talked about it in his like lakeside chat, like announcing the show. He talked about how they had released part of it on that other Dave's picks in 2019. And they're excited to release more songs. Um, so that's kind of how I knew it was coming, but I'm not sure how how widely it was publicized. No, uh, but could go on with what you were saying about the space from twelve four. Well, we we talked about how we we both think that the twelve nine space is a little better. This is more like space. Literally, it sounds like it's being transmitted out of a UAP, which is just what UFOs are called in 2023. <laughs> uh, Phil gets, I think Phil gets a little weirder in this one with like the aliens theme and and the bombs he's throwing out here and there. But I think, I think that the December 9th space is like a better song and it does have like a song feel and structure to it a little bit, which is weird that a space has any sort of structure. No, but I hear you. There's a beginning, middle and an end to that space, right? This 12, four doesn't have any structure. This is just like a, a proper space, but the 12, nine thing I think is just a better song. I buy that. And then I don't, I don't know about you. I thought, I thought the best part of the suite was actually your wife's favorite song. I thought it was Stella Blue. I liked that, but my favorite part was the U.S. Blues, strangely enough. When I looked at the songs, I thought that my favorite part would either be Stella Blue or Sugar Mag, but I just thought, 
it's actually the opposite for me. I thought that the not fade away was super spirited. I really enjoyed it. And I thought that the U S blues was like a great, great U S blues. Uh, I did like the other two songs too. I thought, I thought that this was an excellent little five song suite to put on here because it just was so enjoyable the entire part. And it, I think that this begs the question, it gets us into a question that you like to ask when we have a live release of which of the three discs we would save if they were all rolling off a cliff and we could only save one. Which disc would you save? Uh, it's tough. I'm con- it is tough. I'm conflicted here because I... <sighs> this is a real... I can't believe that I find myself saying this. I think I would save disc one. Wow. Yeah, the the way your eyebrows shot to the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. That the Minglewood Candyman Lazy Lightning Supplication deal run to end that first disc was really, really tight. And and disc where I think you're going with this, that disc three is like you would save that no question. And I that's wouldn't. I'd save disc two. Oh shit. Okay. Yeah, I would save disc two for the Terrapin Sailor Saint jam. That part for me is that's that good stuff. Uh, I liked all three discs a lot. I actually, this was going to be my hot take of this whole episode. This is my favorite Dave's picks in like two years. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. That's hot. Yeah. We'll we'll see. I mean, if it stays on that lofty perch um, for, for how much longer it will, but the last Dave's picks that I received that I felt this highly about was Dave's Picks Volume 36, which was at the end of 2019, I guess, when that would have been. That was two complete shows from the Hartford Civic Center in 1987. I was very high on that. And then the one afterward, 37, was at William & Mary in 78. And I was like, oh my God, Dave's Picks is the greatest album. There's <laughs> never been a better series of albums than this, ever. Um, and since then, I've, I've enjoyed all of the releases in their own regard. But I will say that this was the first one that I've listened to since those halcyon days of my first two Dave's Picks releases where I got something that was so unexpected and surprising just because I think I think I set myself over by not being very familiar with 79. And so it was, you know, kind of untrodden grounds for me. And I loved the early Brent stuff so much. Like you just said, that part at the end of set one is so good. The part that I mentioned in the middle of set two, excellent the end of um, set three, like you were saying earlier from miracle through Donies is great. And then this segment of, of bonus music from 12, four, it's like that to be like a, it's not a throwaway part of the release at all because it's half of the last disc, but for it to be like a tack on bonus portion and to be as good and powerful as it is, it does make me wonder if they could have gotten away with a box set from this tour. I think that they probably could have. So I don't know. I just, I was very, very high on this release. Wow. Yeah. I was not quite as high as you. I, I actually found myself comparing this to volume 46 a lot and thinking that 46 stood a little higher, but there are, I think the peaks here peak higher, but I think the overall consistency of the first two releases of this year Mm -hmm. are, are, are more consistent. So higher floors, maybe, but maybe a slightly but this lower ceiling. Volume forty-seven, I think, has has peaks that go above. There's sustained peaks too. I think that's what's interesting about it. 
is that it's like a sustained peak of like four songs and then you know the couple songs right. where i mean or like four or five songs and then like you know they take a downbeat they take a break a break a breath and then it's like another sustained period of like four or five songs of just absolute heat i think that that's what makes this such a good and worthy release certainly worthy yes all right well uh any final thoughts be- before we get on our way yeah which song would you put on your imaginary playlist sailor saint if i can get away with it i feel like it's fair yeah i think it's fair i mean those songs come as a one-two punch at the beginning of set the side two side b of um go to heaven like they are a pair you know and so i think it's reasonable to take both also as a combined experience it's still not as long as even the terrapin that precedes it so i don't think that that's egregious to take those two and i don't know when i'll have the opportunity to take another sailor saint like i said they only played it 145 times i mean who knows how many how long it's going to be before we talk about another show with it and as we both said the saint of circumstance is just in my head now as it was in yours. So I'm taking, uh, I'm taking sailor saying, what about you? I'm conflicted here. Backed myself into a corner by picking disc one. So I'm going to, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. And it's also, it's the intro to our show. And I don't have one yet. Give me the deal to end disc one. I'm taking that. Nice. It's a good pick. We both got some, some good stuff. I think that uh, we, Oh, some nice shout outs to a couple others while we're on the, the topic. The Lazy Lightning Supplication easily could have been a pick. Um, I think the Shakedown could have been a pick. The Terrapin could have been one. Um, I was torn between the deal and the Birth of Good Lovin'. Yeah. The problem is, it's going to be hard for me to give you the Bertha and the Good Lovin'. I understand it. Yeah. But it's tough because it's not like a, it's not like a China Rider thing where it's like, like I said, this is the one time they ended a set with it. And I know. I, and that's what kind of makes it cooler. I know. <laughs> it is tough. So I think that that's going to do it for us. We will be back in two weeks with another From the Vault release. We'll go back to another one of our old favorites um, from past episodes. We haven't talked about which one it's going to be, but I think it'll be something from our first year of shows just to kind of get something that's more of a throwback. So we'll we'll be back with that with a new intro in two weeks, and then we're going to be away for another couple of weeks before we get back into the full swing of things with um, some exciting new episodes. So stick with us, stay on the bus, and um, and we'll be back. Uh, also follow us on social media. We have not been very active there lately, but we will be again soon. I think that's going to do it. Anything else from you, Dave? Nothing. Land this plane. All right. On that note, and until next time, we bid you good night. That's it, that's it. You got it.